Hi, I'm Jim Juno, and this is the Juno Files, where we talk about movies, television, and everything in between. Cold-Blooded Murder is the new book by Toronto Sun columnist Brad Hunter. Now, murder is the most vile crime known to man, and it can be triggered by love, or money, or sex. Those are the three big ticket items for homicide. But people are strange. They will kill for the most obscure and ridiculous of reasons. And in 30 years of covering murder, Brad Hunter has discovered each one has its own flavor. Cops and friends can be stunned by the evil lurking within a seemingly ordinary man or woman. But several of the stories lurking in Brad Hunter's book have connections, whether tenuous or, or solid, to the entertainment industry. Brad Hunter joins us now on the Juno Files. Welcome to the show, Brad. Hey, Jim, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. I well, you thank you for having me on. Oh, no problem at all. Now, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book. Oh, let's see. Well, I've been in the uh, newspaper business for about 30 years. I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I'm Canadian, but I, uh, but I worked at the New York Post for six years. Um, and, uh, and now I'm national crime columnist for the Toronto Sun. Um, you know, I've been uh, fascinated with uh, murder and crime, you know, since I was since I was a kid. You know, if things had gone the wrong way, I could have ended up becoming a homicidal maniac myself, maybe. But uh, but I had uh, solid parents, and uh, all the uh, all the uh, none of the factors were there. Uh, the puppies were safe. <laughs> I tell you what, now, how many stories are there? You were, I, mean, I was counting like about maybe twenty and between twenty and thirty. Yeah, it's, it's something like 25, I think. And, and they're, you know, over a, a wide space of time and uh, a wide array of uh, circumstances. I mean, the one thing you won't find in there, even though I've you know, spent a lot of time covering uh, these sorts of things over the years, have been, uh, you know, mob murders. Uh, and uh, that you won't find that in there, but, uh, but everything else is. Yeah, and the one guy, the one, we're going to touch on a few of them. I don't want to talk, we're not going to talk about all of them, because why would we talk about all of them and then have people buy the book, you know? So, um, but the ones that I want to touch on, they have some connections to uh, TV and Hollywood and movies and, and so forth. And the first one that came to mind was The Dating Game Killer. <laughs> Yeah. Rodney uh, Alcala with that really, really nice haircut. Well, I think the state of California has given him a trim, but. Uh... Yeah, he's now 77 and on, uh, according to your book on uh, still sitting on, on death row. This guy, I mean, this guy got away with so much and he was so, he was so arrogant. I don't know how many serial killers have the gall to go on a national dating game show. <laughs> You know, <laughs> luckily she never she never went on a date with him though. Hey, eh? I mean he, he was the winner, but uh, he was uh, he was too creepy for uh, for the for the for the female on the show. See, that's what that's what stunned me is that that I used to watch that show every once in a while, and it's like you really got to go on like to creep the uh, some people out on that show. Um, this guy though, I mean he was he had already been wanted. When he appeared, didn't he? 
Well, yeah, he was already wanted and uh, for murder at the time, but uh, you know, was crisscrossing between California and uh, New York, Connecticut, sort of thing, where he was uh, where he was uh, committing murders. Uh, it's uh, you know a bit a bit vague, but obviously at the time, you know, cops didn't have the same tools that they do now. Um, you know, it hasn't, I've been in the business long enough that, you know, oftentimes, you know, a, a police officer of less intellect might not be able to put the simplest things together when they're, you know, when they're clearly obvious, you know, hey, do you remember that? Oh, geez. Oh, yeah, you're right. That is a little bit like that, you know, so, you know, but, but they've certainly, they've certainly upped their game at least. Uh, you know, in the investigative aspect of, uh, of solving crimes. I mean, Alcala would have had, you know, handcuffs on him um, before the end of the show if, uh, you know, if, if cops in 1973 knew and had what you know, was accessible now. Right, they didn't, the they didn't even do background checks on, on the people appearing on the show. Well, you know, but that, I mean, that's no big surprise. I mean, you look at the, you look at the reality, uh, reality TV and uh, a friend of mine's sister is a longtime casting director for reality TV shows. And, you know, what she said was, you ought to see the ones that don't get on. <laughs> I mean, that's, and that's true. I mean, I just saw an advertisement for a show today that, it dealt with people getting out of prison and finding love. And I thought, uh, these are the people who make the air. What are we not seeing? You know? <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the crossroads of entertainment and crime uh, is a frequently traveled path. Did that, does anything about these stories, or did anything about these stories surprise you? Did anything about them surprise me? Um, how normal so many of these people are. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, and, and in, indeed, oftentimes, right? You know, you see the, the woman who's, you know, a mouse burger, starts an affair, decides she's going to top her, you know, research her husband, uh, her pediatric AIDS researcher husband by poisoning him to death with arsenic and you know you know that's that's you know that's and this is ostensibly a normal looking person you know the football coach that you know starts you know some semblance of an affair and decides he's going to kill his wife and you know, I mean, there's an element of it. It's just uh, the, the stupidity is shocking. I mean, if anything happened, you know, to my wife, obviously, the first person they're going to look at is me. No matter how solid my alibi is, they're going to look at me and they're going to crawl into every nook and cranny of my life until they find what they what they're going to be looking for and chances are in most instances in murder as we know is that they will find what they're looking for you know 
And, I, and for those of you listening, I'm not adding any sound effects. Those are actually police cars going by. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing the I'm hearing the sirens going going by. I'm like, oh, I'll close I'll close no, the door. It's so appropriate. It is so appropriate that we're talking about this and there are police cars going by. <laughs> it, Let me and, close the door here, Jim. Hang on. <laughs> It adds atmosphere to the to the story. You know? There we go. That was so cool, though. That's a... But but uh, where were we? Oh, we're just talking about how how um, how they're very um, very confident in how they're doing things, and they and they really some of them are really clever. Well, yeah, I mean, the, nobody, you know, it's like everyone, the also thing is, is too, is, is, is also, you know, they want, want the reward of the husband or wife not being around anymore to, so they can carry on with their great new life and everything, but, but you know, they don't realize that there's, and that's fine, but there's a sacrifice you got to make and that's money and uh, they don't want to make that that sacrifice and and as a result you, you see you know uh, any number of uh, insurance murders in in the, in the, the um, in my book right i mean and like you say i mean the uh, it's not the uh, holy tri- or holy trinity or the unholy unholy trinity love money and sex you know, a very few, very few drug-related uh, murders. No, well, those those are just business. I mean, I mean, I, I uh, years ago I interviewed uh, I interviewed a woman. I don't know whether you know her name or not. Uh, uh, I think I was still at the New York Post at the time. Uh, Krista Pike, and she was uh, a teenager in Tennessee, and she stabbed. A love rival to death 188 times with uh, with an exacto knife, uh, and and she was at, at one point the youngest uh, woman on death row in America, and she uh, she she this was in Tennessee. She scared the death out of me, but I you know interviewing a gangster like Sammy the Bull Gravano. I mean, who's put 19 people in the ground? He doesn't. He doesn't scare me in the slightest because, you know, with him it was business, always business. It was never anything personal. It wasn't like he was going to, you know, you accidentally bumped into him in a bar, he would shoot you. No, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't that sort. So, yeah, it was a business and uh, a way of life. But somebody like Crystal Pike, that you know, that scare you to death. Yeah, and and like people like Sammy uh, to the Bulls of Honor will, will be the first to say it's not too personal. It's just well, like, yeah, exactly, right? And that's that's you know, I mean, a lot of people have the fears, fear of uh, gang violence and the randomness of it, and and there is some truth, particularly among the younger uh, younger uh, gangbangers and whatnot, that yeah, it can be very dangerous, but. They get less dangerous as they get older, particularly, you know, and and you know they understand that jail and heat from the cops is 
you know, something that will uh, will cost them money and could end them end up being dead. I I, I know the traditional organized crime, crime La Casa Nostra, that uh, they're not really big on mistakes, right? Uh, you know, if you get an innocent bystander in the crossfire or something like that, there's probably about a 90% chance that they're going to find you in the weeds, right? Because they don't need that heat, you know? <laughs> uh, let's talk about the chapter called Hollywood Horror. Um, a, lot of, a lot of kids, I want to say kids, because they're like young girls and young men. They, they may be from the Midwest. They may be from the South. They may be from, from the East Coast. They want to make their way to Hollywood because they have dreams of becoming a star or a starlet. But a lot of times they run into the wrong crowd or people looking to take advantage of that. And it well, yeah. meets, uh, you know, you know, human flesh is cheap in, uh, in Hollywood. I, I um, interviewed uh, um, James uh, Elroy, the author James Elroy, uh, many years ago, and, and we were we we're discussing that, you know, just what you were saying, Jim, and uh, and he said what he said, and that's always stuck with me, was that people come to Hollywood to be somebody else and when you have that little self-esteem terrible things are bound to happen um and you know i mean the most famous case of that is the 1947 unsolved murder of elizabeth short who is better known as the black dahlia right. uh, i mean there's been umpteen theories on it. There's, you know, some uh, very, and very convincing theories of who the killer actually is. But that killer was never brought to justice, which leads to um, the, the story I wrote um, in Hollywood Horror. Uh, the, it featured a, a young man, a, a trust fund kid, a trust affarian, named Blake Leibold from Toronto, whose family was worth a gazillion dollars, both on his mother and his father's side. And he had this massive trust fund and had some notion of uh, being in the film business with a graphic uh, uh, novel sort of, sort of genre of things. And Blake Leibold, uh, he someplace someplace along the way, uh, fantasy uh, blurred with reality. Now, guys, I interviewed uh, at the time for the for the Toronto Sun that knew him in in Hollywood said that I mean, there's tons of guys like that that are just you know uber uber geeks with lots of money and stuff like that, and they want to be a part of it and everything, but don't don't essentially have much talent themselves. And, um, but he was, uh, he was on a different level, according to the guys that I talked to. Like he was, you know, a lot of them are pretty weird. He was really weird. And so what ties in with the Black Dahlia here is that, you know, he, you know, came unchained from reality and he had left his wife and he hooked up with this um, uh, uh, Ukrainian model uh, named uh, Ayanna Cassian 
and Diana Cassian, uh, very attractive and everything like that. And they got together and they had a baby together. Uh, and but after the ch- when the child was about five months old, uh, Blake Libel um, basically, you know, drained, murdered, and drained all the blood from Diana uh, Cassian. Uh, killing her, and the, the LAPD homicide detectives, uh, you know, described described the scene and what had happened to her as the worst murder in the city's history, next to probably the Black Dahlia. It was uh, comparable to that, and that's you know, that's the you know, uh, maybe perhaps a poor way of putting it, but that's the gold standard in the macabre. And uh, um, so, you know, now he he you know, he was caught right there, but uh, and has been convicted. He was extremely lucky that uh, that uh, California took the death penalty off the table. But he'll he'll never see the light of day again. And for all intents and purposes, his family have. You know, nothing to do with him, and uh, you know we get shit every time uh, uh, we mention him and uh, about the family and everything. <laughs> so, and the, the other one I want to talk about is a chapter called Elvis Execution. Now, I I knew about uh, is it Jimmy Ellis? Is that his name? Uh, portrayed Orion. Uh, he was an Elvis imitator. Yeah, the, yeah, the, um, Dana. What was his last name? I'm sorry, I don't have the notes in front of me. That's okay. They, yeah, Dana. Uh, but he was, but like, uh, like uh, Orion, um, who was killed during a robbery. This yeah, down Alabama or Tennessee. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't seems like uh, it could be some bad luck. Uh, you know, uh, when it comes to being all the cemeteries, let me just quickly look up his last name, Jim. I'm sorry. Sure. While you're doing that, I'll let people know that that um, this particular Elvis imitator, he was not involved in drugs. He was not involved in any shady dealings. He had a he had a, a good, uh, stable home life, and yet it's still it's still it the bad luck still found him. Dana McKay. Okay, yeah, McKay. Yeah, Dana McKay, he uh, he was one of the top Elvis uh, imitators in uh, Las Vegas. And he, um, you know, was a very good, but, and as you say, lived a you know, clean, steady, normal life. And he wanted to leave the business for some reason. Uh, he, you know, he had a beauty clean girlfriend, but he wanted to leave the business because he was, uh, fascinated by palm trees, and he thought that he could make a fortune uh, getting a city contract in Las Vegas um, with the with uh, getting palm trees for up and down the strip, which at the time they didn't have. Uh, and he went into uh, business with another guy, and uh, six months later there was a falling out, and. Not much longer after that, uh, Dana McKay and his uh, beautiful girlfriend were uh, found uh, murdered in his uh, Las Vegas mansion. And that was in 1993, and uh, it remains cold. It comes up periodically, but that, uh, that remains uh, another 
cold case murder. I, I take it many, many, many cold cases. The police are fully aware of who the killer is, but can't dot the I's or cross the T's, or at the very least have a good idea. Um, and in this situation, I don't get that it's a big mystery, but that still doesn't bring back Dana McKay. Uh, you know, he's still dead. And uh, his family is, is uh, you know, his daughter is still, you know, hoping for some, you know, sort of justice. And she's in, like, you know, in her 30s now. So I think she's, I don't know, maybe yeah, 30, 35, something like that. But, but yeah, and these... These sorts of murders that remain unsolved, I mean, they stick with families for decades and decades and decades. It, it, to an extent, it ruins their life. I did a story, I guess, last year, was it last year or the year before, on um, a, a guy who'd been sentenced to death here in Canada for uh, murdering kids. And he wiggled out of it during uh, a time when there's a more liberal view sort of thing. He ends up getting released and he raped uh, two boys uh, in uh, Toronto who were both 11 years old. And, uh, and then he went on the run to, um, to Tennessee where he got busted for another uh, you know, sexually assaulting or, or raping a young boy. And they kept him on ice there forever. Now, he had just died. But I went to interview the woman who was like 90-something, whose son had been murdered in 1962. And I talked to her, and she's very pleasant. And when I got down to starting to talk, she just couldn't, she couldn't do it. And that's, you know, 50-some-odd years later. Uh, you know, and she just broke down, and so it's you know it's something you you look at, you do the math, and you think of this family or that family, uh, and it spreads you know like like a cancer, you know, it infects all kinds of people, and and it does you know not not always, but oftentimes it ruins everyone's life who's been touched by. It. And you've covered you've covered uh, murder trials in Canada and in the USA. What's the big What's the biggest difference between the two uh, venues, so, so to speak? Um, in uh, in Canada, it's uh, I would say it's. I mean, you have to almost start from the point of the arrest, Jim. Uh, police in the United States. I've worked in both countries, and as you know, and I've covered trials in, in both countries is that the sharing of information in the United States is significantly greater and the rights of the accused in Canada are uh, more, uh, it's more of a, at the front of their mind to protect the rights of the accused than often the victims and their families. Uh, that would be that would be one of the, the big things, and you know it's it's um it's a little more formal. Uh, our courtrooms, you know, in you know big trials, it's you know robes and 
you know, very serious sort of, sort of stuff. We, we've ditched the wigs, like our... Uh, I was going to ask you that. Do y'all still wear the wigs? No, no, no. The, the, U, the UK and Australia still have the wigs, but we don't. All righty. Um, now, you mentioned, like, the Krista Pike story. Stuck, uh, that was the one that scared you the most. Was there any of the any of these stories that stand out to you in the, in the book? Um, I think I think what's most chilling is the 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 normalcy of uh, of a lot of these a lot of these people. We call them. I'll sit down to my uh, computer and call them a killer uh, or a murderer or a monster. And then, by a lot of standards, that's that's exactly what they will fall under. But the thing is, is they look like you and me. They, 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 they go about their days. They go to the, to the 7-Eleven or the Safeway and, and you know, they buy their slacks at JCPenney. And, and, you know, all is, you know, calm. But underneath there, uh, there's a lot of problems. Uh, you know, people have, people have, their own private narratives they that they often don't share with even the people closest to them, you know in which you know they're the hero the stud the the vixen uh any number of things like that and i think it starts it starts in your mind and you start seeing things a certain way i know you know particularly since you know since the pandemic and i'm certainly certainly you know people that if people spend enough time alone uh, and by themselves and in their own head, you know, it doesn't take very long to start imagining things, things that, you know, might be a, a blackhead that you see as a, you know, lung cancer, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I know people like that. And I think that that's oftentimes what happens is people build them, frenzy they build themselves into into killers because they see it as the only way and there's something just not right there and it, they, there's a disconnect i mean it's why when you're in a fight when you're in a, a kid you know in the schoolyard you know okay so you've bopped bobby a couple times in the nose you're giving him a bloody nose he's crying what do you do you stop right of course you stop that's what that's what most of us do. These are people who don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, I, I really appreciate you taking time today to talk about the new book. Um, it's called Cold-Blooded Murder, and you can find out more about Brad Hunter's book at adlibpublishers.com. Brad, again, thank you, for being, thank you for being on the Juno Files, Brad. Anytime, and let me know if you need anything else. Thank you. So until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been The Juno Files.